Our commission management, everybody's made it really clear. Our capital is an investment in the future of the county. Up and down the food chain, it's, it's a given that it's an investment and the capital is not expected to be returned. You're listening to episode 279 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Christopher recently attended the Broadband Communities Economic Development Conference. He attends every fall, and if he's lucky, he's able to record interviews with people from some of the communities we're curious about. He also makes the trip to each Broadband Communities Summit, the springtime event. While he was at the November event in Atlanta, he connected with several people, including this week's guest, Russ Brethauer, from the Grant County Public Utility District in Washington. Grant County PUD has one of the most established and geographically largest open access community networks in the U.S., The rural community's population is sparse and widely distributed, but community leaders had an eye toward the future when they decided to invest in fiber infrastructure. In this interview, Russ shares the story of their network and describes some of their challenges. Here's Christopher with Russ Brethauer from the Grant County Public Utility District in Washington. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bids Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today I'm in Atlanta, sitting on the runway of the Atlanta airport at the Broadband Communities Summit, which is, uh, we're focused on economic development here. And today I'm talking to Russ Brethauer, Project Specialist for Grant County Public Utility District in Washington. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. So, Russ, I've been trying to get you on for a long time. You are one, uh, you're coming from one of the communities that has the oldest municipal fiber networks in the nation. Yeah, we actually started back in 2000 uh, with a pilot and have been building fiber to the home off and on ever since then. Yeah, so for people's context, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s was that transition. And so you were actually building some fiber to the home when the last HFC networks were still being built. And there was that, that transition. You figured out how to make it work at a time when nobody else was doing fiber to the home. We actually bought a lot of equipment, replaced a lot of equipment based on the promises not coming true. Um, so we were definitely one of the pioneers when it came to fiber to the home. And you know, I, I'm always curious about this because I, I feel like people always assume that the large companies are the ones out there trying new things. And I think in some fields they may be. I, I'm not as I don't believe that as much, but I don't research it as closely as I should, maybe. But you know, were there other private companies, like local firms around the nation that you were in touch with? Like, how, What was that ecosystem like then? It, it kind of started in Grant PUD with uh, a visionary. And we happened to have a nice cash register on the Columbia River that uh, had us a little bit of extra cash in our pockets. So the commission, uh, they were really the visionaries, uh, but they asked what they could do to better the community. And so one of the engineers on staff happened to have been doing research and in contact with other folks and said, yeah, fiber to the home is the future. When you say a cash register, we can we can step back for a second. I, I remember when I was first getting a sense of what it's like in Grant and Chelan, uh, another public utility district that also was active. And you said Douglas was active then as well, just to give them their due. Absolutely. I, it was maybe five or six years ago, I saw there was a, a, an argument in Chelan, I think it was, about electricity prices going up to 3.3 cents a kilowatt hour, and people were frustrated. Yeah, we, we struggle with raising our rates. Um you know, we make some commitments not to raise them very high, but they're still 
some of the cheapest in the country. I mean, Chelan's normally the cheapest or Douglas or us. It mm-hmm. depends on the year. Right. And so there's a couple of things to keep in mind. When the rates are that low, people use electricity a heck of a lot more. Um, so Absolutely. don't think that, <laughs> don't think that, that they're, you know, um, don't think that it's a total free ride. Um, and you, you get a lot of that revenue from um, the reason for that. The reason for that is that you have these dams on the, the Columbia, which are a relic of how we electrified the nation. Absolutely. Um, some other visionaries, you know, 50, 60 years ago uh, in Grant County took it on an, upon themselves to actually invest in dams on the main stem of the Columbia. And there's a lot of, you know, ecological issues that go with dams on the main stem of the Columbia these days. But we've got... Uh, we and our partners have 2000 megawatts of generation on the Columbia. Right. That's a, that's a decent sized nuclear reactor. (laughs) Well, it it can run a few cities this, the size of Seattle. Now let's, let's fast forward uh, 17 years into the future to today. Uh, What does uh, the fiber footprint look like in Grant County? Right now we've actually got it to about 70% of the people in Grant County. As an electric utility, we look at it as, you know, the number of electric meters that we're in front of. And we have, very close to 50,000 electric meters. And, um, you know, we've got 30,000 fiber passings. Um, but when I say we've got 50,000 meters, about 10,000 of those are actually irrigation meters that aren't going to use fiber to the home. At least not right now. <laughs> well, and agriculture, I mean, it, it's a huge user of broadband and it's getting more and more so, but we know we won't have to build fiber to the pump because the the farmers, the irrigators already have connectivity to their pumps. Otherwise, they'd go out of business. And just to give one other context of scale, I mean, you're a large county, but you're not very dense. And sometimes people think county, and I have to remind people that counties out west are the size of states out east. I told someone the other day the size, and I said, well, we're about 3,000 square miles, and their jaw just dropped because, uh, you know, we are a fairly large county even for out west. Um, and when you compare it to what people call rural here around Atlanta, we're desolate. Population is uh, dense in a few little towns around. We call them cities. Um, you know, the largest town in our county is Moses Lake, and it's got, I believe, 26,000 population right now. And we're not talking about nice, easy-to-plow underground fiber paths. Uh, you got some rock? It depends on where you're at in the county, actually. Um, some parts of our county, uh, people almost pay us to plow because it's so easy. Um, other places, you actually get out a hammer and hammer uh, to get any sort of a trench. So as we're talking about the modern day, what kind of impact? I mean, if you can imagine what Grant would be like without these investments, uh, you know, how, how, what's the difference? We get to have lots of discussions because it's always political around building fiber to the home. Um, but right now we have data centers, um, large data centers, uh, locating in Grant County, uh, cheap power, absolutely is important, uh, cheap land, the state of Washington giving tax incentives for them to show up. Uh, but without the fiber, they wouldn't have been there either. So it's not like the fiber brought them, but the fiber was a key infrastructure for them to land there. And, and I imagine, I, I was just recently talking with a small community in, in eastern Oregon. Um, I, I would imagine you have a fair amount of people who live or spend more of their time in Grant County because it's a pretty attractive place to be than they might otherwise. You know, Grant County is an interesting location. Um, it's got over a billion dollars of agricultural revenue. Um, number one potato producer in the country. 
Um, so big farms, um, and sagebrush and, you know, it's a high desert environment. So for some people, that's very attractive. People with arthritis, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And for other people, it's not that attractive. Um, you know, it's, it's individual taste, but it was very attractive for the data farms and data farms actually, even though they pay what most people in the country would say is a very low electric rate, um, it's more than our cost to serve them. So they're actually a very good source of revenue for Grant PUD. So how does the, how's the discussion going about connecting the, the 10,000 or so additional um, um, electric meters that uh, may want to be connected in coming years? Right now, uh, our commission has made it clear to the management that it's the most important thing is maintaining reasonable electric rates. Um, there's no longer a big market to sell uh, excess generation to California. We don't make money on that anymore. There's days where we actually pay people to take the power because we have to move it for fish. So um, as with anybody, uh, times are a little bit tight from a capital perspective. So there's a lot of discussion around it right now of what's more important, finishing out the broadband or keeping electric rates low. And honestly, it hasn't been completely answered yet. Our commission's still chewing on that one uh, because they're getting chewed on very hard by the Uh, We call it 30% of our county that doesn't have the fiber, Um, but we've supported this by, you know, having electric rates a little bit higher than they would have been if we hadn't built the fiber. So everybody's really comfortable that they've been paying for the fiber, even though 30% of them don't have it. I can imagine that that could be frustrating for those who want it in particular. Um, the One of the interesting things is that um, you have possibly the largest open access network in the country or close to it. Uh, geographically, I'll guarantee it is. Um, <laughs> but you know, as far as users, we've got about 16,000 users on the network. Um, and it's wide open access. Uh, the cost to become a service provider, uh, $500 setup fee, a $2,500 deposit, and a million-dollar liability insurance policy. And you, too, can be a service provider on our network. And let me just, I'll just jump in for a second. Long-time listeners will know I'm a photographer. I carry a million-dollar liability policy. It is not a barrier. It's a reasonable insurance cost. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it, it sounds like a lot, but it's actually very inexpensive. But it, it, it gives us a little bit of protection as the network operator. So... You know, today we have, I've been saying 23 all week to folks who ask, but I actually look back and count them. We have 24 different service providers on our networks. Um, some of them, you know, our revenue off of those folks, maybe a couple thousand dollars a month. And some of them, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. So it it's working for those service providers because we've had 20 plus service providers for years and years. And this is one of one of the concerns that I've amplified um, that I had thought was actually happening. The reason nobody should ever listen to me, apparently, <laughs> is that um, with you have when you have such low costs of entry for a service provider to come in, there's been a concern that that you would not be profitable as a service provider. You'd end up losing all that competition. But you're not seeing that. And you, I mean, it's, this isn't like three or five years of data. You have. I think 16 years of data. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we kind of expected them to sort out, sell out to each other. Um, and there's been a little bit of consolidation. Don't get me wrong. You know, uh, some of the bigger ones do take over some of the smaller ones that want to get out of the business. But we still have 20, 
24. I almost said 23 again. Um, so it must be working for him. Right. And you said that um, I, I had asked you if, if one of them has like 90% market share and you said absolutely not. One of them, I, I was looking to prepare for this and one of them has uh, about 50% of our revenue and then it's scattered across the rest. And that the one that has the 50%, they're very aggressive. I mean, they market, they market more than we do. Um, they have a triple play. Um, there is no head end on our network, but neighboring utilities have head ends. One's an IP and, and one's, uh, not It's a standard cable TV head end. Um, all that video can come down onto our network. So they are offering triple plays across and that's, that's beneficial to them, obviously. Well, and we, we noted that, that you were able to fund this without having to go out and get um, big loans or anything like that because you have all this revenue coming in. That, that's uh, another fun political argument. Um, our commission very much uh, was of the perspective that our surplus revenues from, again, selling power south to California is what we use to build the network. So in their minds, uh, we really weren't incurring debt for the network, but the district as a whole has debt. We have dams on the river, we're refurbing the dams, we have a lot of debt. So um, it's a politically arguable point as to whether any debt was used on the fiber network. And I I bring that up because it's not expected that revenues from the network will cover the, the cost of having built the network. Our commission management, everybody's made it really clear. Our capital is an investment in the future of the county. And being a desolate county, um, you know, kids were leaving. Um, farms, no matter how big they were, were going to have trouble staying in business. So everyone wanted to keep people there, or at least afford them the opportunities to stay there if that worked for them. So um, up and down the food chain, it's it's a given that it's an investment and the capital is not expected to be returned. I always want to remind people that when we're talking about this, I think that there's a little bit of a lack of sophistication among some people in terms of understanding that a one-time capital investment uh, is a brilliant way to, to do a subsidy, whereas there are some networks that are running negative operating and they need recurring subsidies. Um, I'm, I'm so thrilled to see local communities that, that embrace this approach um, voting to do that. So Leverett, Massachusetts, recently you chose to raise a property tax to pay for the one-time capital cost of the network. Linden, Michigan just did this. So in some ways, you're, again, we were ahead of the curve. I'm I would love to see more communities deciding that it would be appropriate for them to tax themselves for a one-time cost of building fiber and keeping it open um, to multiple providers. I'm a big proponent of open access because it is working and it allows small local businesses to grow if they want to and, and make a living in, you know, in the high-tech world. Um, but it's more important that it's local control. What works for the locality? We happen to run an electric utility, so we happen to have some high-tech people. Yeah, we can run a network and you know set up VLANs, logical networks across to allow 24 different service providers to be on our network. Not every municipality has that. So it's like, what works for them? 
So one thing that we see often in Washington, and, and I've and in talking to different public utility districts across Washington, I recognize there's a variety of opinions. Is is we're seeing more of um, user financed, where um, you just set up a local improvement district or whatever you want to call it, local utility district. Um, you know, as someone who must pay close attention to this, um, you know, what kind of pros and cons do you see with that kind of approach to expanding access? The the pros and cons it. It bothers me to see winners and losers, and you know, local improvement districts um, are great for people who are frustrated that they're not getting the infrastructure. Okay, so what should that actually tell the local elected officials? It's like, no, it shouldn't be telling you <laughs> that, oh, the ones who can afford it should have it and the rest of them shouldn't. It's like, no, it's a required infrastructure. Let's take a look at how to actually fund it broadly. I mean, I applaud the people who step up and actually go set up a tax on themselves to pay for this infrastructure. Um, but it, it really kind of hard hides the main argument. Right. It's, it's kind of, in some ways, I mean, uh, what I'm expecting is that this is a good way for a utility district that hasn't been involved with this before in terms of publicly provisioning fiber to maybe get their, their toes in the water. And then I would expect to see more demand over time and not them not to be using that model necessarily in five years. You would hope so. Um, but I, I chatted with a gentleman from Minnesota yesterday, and it's like I asked him, how many conferences have you been to? where people are arguing about how to pay for this highway. <laughs> the answer was zero. Well, and, and let's just hold on for a second there, because people always talk about fiber is so expensive in rural areas. How much does it cost to, to run a road in, in, in Grand County? And, and nobody even asks. And most of them are paved, and most of them require annual maintenance. And there is no revenue. You know, it, It's a tax base to support that. This is a network that will actually, once you've made that initial investment, it will actually support itself as far as ongoing operation and maintenance. Right. Yeah, I just I always always appreciate the, that reality check because I mean we're we sometimes do comparisons. You know, Seattle's thinking, oh man, we can't possibly um, even um, do a, a fiber network citywide, and I think there are reasons for them to consider certain models and this and that. But at the same time. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. They're spending $4 billion on one bridge. <laughs> like, yeah. It's an important bridge, but people people get obsessed about the cost of fiber. It's one of the cheaper municipal investments we see um, made. A- absolutely, and it's a long-term investment. Uh, the fiber, you know, we argue all the time about the, what the right uh, architecture is for the network, but bottom line is once the fiber's there, you can architect your network any way you need to. Um, it's... It's very easy to get caught up in the small percentages of increases in revenue that you have to have as a municipality or you know, a governmental entity to fund the network. But if you look at it from a perspective of your overall costs and your overall tax base, um, like we looked at it on the electric side, and we'd have to, the most pessimistic studies, we'd have to raise our electric rates three percent to go build the rest of the network well three percent of a low rate is still a low rate right um i mean uh, excel energy my service provider just raised our rates four and a half percent and i'm not getting anything for that uh, you're getting electricity well right i mean and, I'm, and I'm continued electricity more, right. yeah and, and that's important but you're absolutely right it's a good reminder yeah. I, I i love to say and coming from the public side you can't do it but i mean if you didn't talk about it, nobody would notice Mm-hmm. But obviously, you have to talk about it and full disclosure and wide open. But at the end of the day, 
Yeah. And that's what we had focus groups. And a lot of the folks, once they understood what the monthly impact was on their electric bill, it's like their bill varies more than that based on whether <laughs> they were pumping water that month or not. So it's like, uh, you know, they wouldn't even notice. Right. Go out and buy a few LEDs and it may, may offset it. A- absolutely. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to be more and more critical infrastructure and people, I mean, that's the fun part about a conference like this is, um, it, it's obvious it's, it is the infrastructure of the future. Well, let me ask you, cause you've been doing this for 15 years. Yes. Um, how how have things changed in that? Uh, you know, I think people are getting it. I think, in fact, a lot more people get it than elected leaders. I think elected leaders are lagging the the sense from people that it's a utility. But how how have things progressed? Did you think that by 2020 we'd have a lot more fiber or a lot less fiber than what we're looking to have? Uh, I actually figured that um, we'd be done having the discussion, honestly, um, because there's so much that can be done across it. We have we have people that are working in San Francisco that live in Grant County because they have fiber to their home and they can do home network. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it, it, it's still frustrating that it's even a discussion. Uh, but it is encouraging that it's getting to be less and less of a discussion. It's just around, you know, what are the most important municipal um, services to offer? And it's definitely coming to the top. Mm-hmm. So last question, in all of this time, how many times have you been told that fiber is not the future, that wireless is the future? About weekly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's proven wrong just about every time. But, you know, it's not an either or. Uh, The wireless is absolutely a critical overlay. Um, People want that mobility. And it's all going to the smartphone or a tablet. Um, Absolutely, that's what you want. But as we've seen at this conference, it's like, even if you go to 5G, it's like, okay, best range is a thousand feet and you got to have a fiber connection to be able to support it. So it's like everybody, there is no argument about what the technology is going to be. It's going to be fiber at least to the curb, if not to the home. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for, for coming up. I've been wanting to, to pick your brain for a while. Really appreciate the chance. Thank you very much. It's fun to talk. That was Christopher talking with Russ Brethauer, project specialist from Washington's Grant County Public Utility District. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 279 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Podcast.